This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us. On today's show, Devlin Mahadeva, family lawyer extraordinaire, answering all of your questions from lots of divorce, but also wills. Can a Muslim have a will here in the UAE? And what are the costs involved? I was joined by celebrity Pilates trainer Yasmin Karachiwala. Dr. Amanda Toki explains why children are struggling with anxiety today and when it might be necessary to reach out to an expert. And we were talking examination, marking Breast Cancer Awareness Month, from checking at home to ultrasounds and mammograms. Which one is best for you? Dr. Rita from King's College Hospital was on hand to help. Welcome to your free legal clinic here on Dubai I 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer and joining us in the hot seat today is Devnan Mahadeva, director and lawyer at Baker Tilly JFC Law Group. He specialises in family law, inheritance. We've had questions on custody, on notarising divorces, on getting married. Never a dull moment for you. How are you, sir? Doing fine, doing Pretty good. Doing pretty good. It's a, <laughs> do, that's all I think a lot of us can hope for right now. So that's thank it. you for being with us today. Um, so what's keeping you busy right now? I always find it quite interesting to get a bit of a read on the city through what's, uh, what's popping on your desk. I mean, like, uh, as of time, it's GTEx right across the road from my office. <laughs> Which is why you're happy to come to Media City. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I had to leave pretty early to get here. Well, uh, but did. other than that, of course, uh, the clients keep you busy. Um, especially the family matters when you have to do a negotiation to mutually settle off. This is in divorce? Yeah. Now, we've had a number of messages asking about different aspects of divorce and how to divorce, if that makes sense. I'd like to start with this one, if you don't mind, because this is the kind of almost pre-divorce and we've had questions about negotiating custody and other issues as well, definitely. Um, He has been in touch um, anonymously saying, my husband and I have recently separated. We've come to an amicable amicable financial and custody agreement. Is there a way to get this legalized so neither of us can change it without actually divorcing? We don't want to officially get divorced due to some visa reasons. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Understandable. See, you can always have this document between both of you. But if you have to uh, legalize it in the court of law, you have to get to court and have a separation. Because otherwise, why do you have to have a a custody and um, financial arrangement? Mm -hmm. So you have to go in for the uh, separation or the divorce to get this document legalized. So the, the legalization would be an official divorce? Official divorce. Th- at this point, it's really a case of, you know, I trust you, you trust me, let's yep. let this be the case moving forward. What about that visa complication? You know, can, can there be an argument for actually get divorced and it might not impact your, your visa situation? See, like technically speaking, when you look at it, when you divorce, you have to cancel the spouse's visa. Um, of course, the father or mother can sponsor the children. Uh, father can definitely sponsor the children. The mother can sponsor the children provided the father gives a NOC, okay. no objection certificate. So that is not an issue at all here. But um, when the spouse has to be sponsored, uh, then it gets complicated once you're uh, divorced per se. Okay. I really hope that helps, E. But in terms of legalizing it, it would be getting it going through that divorce process. process. Um, a message here um, that came in just earlier today, and I really can't stress this enough, we always have a bit of a flurry of messages um, right before the end. So if you do want some advice 
some free legal insights without having to put your hand in your pocket apart from to get your phone out. I do urge you to pick up your phone as soon as possible. Um, no name saying if a divorce agreement has been sealed in court, mother's custodian, dad is the guardian. Can the guardian reopen the case to file for joint custody? The kids are five and seven. Uh he can reopen the case for joint custody provided his own or her country law allows for a joint custody. Okay, UAE, they allow joint custody, but it can become objectionable. The other party can uh, object to it, saying that their own country law doesn't allow joint custody. Just for a bit of clarity, can you name a few countries that don't have joint custody as part of their legal setup? Uh, for example, uh, countries like UK or India where in Australia they have uh, joint custody. So it, it depends on the country. But what happens here, the complication here is that if he has to open a file for a joint custody, he has to prove that the mother is not doing it right. So that means, uh, you know, he's, he has to do quite a bit of mudslinging on the mother to do it, which is not advisable for the well-being of the children. Thank you for saying that. I think we, we've, we've touched on this on the past and it's about exactly having a most child-centric yes. divorce as possible. Um, you're talking about, yeah, you're using the, the phrase mudslinging there and, and it's presumably quite hard, I don't know, you tell us, to prove that someone is an unfit parent for your gains as, as in terms of custody. What would you need to qualify, quantify for it to stand up in court? It is very, very difficult. You have to have reports from school counsellors. You have to have reports uh, uh, to a mental health of the the parent who is having custody of the child uh, or a child abuse proof. Uh, various reasons has to be proved to get custody to the other parent. It's not very easy. Okay. Um, no name on this message. I've been saying, um, I got my divorce in France. I'm a resident in Dubai. My ex-husband is from Qatar. It's a lot of lot of flags knocking around. Um, do I need to have my divorce papers notarized here? Uh, she will need the divorce papers notarized if he, if she's going to sponsor the children um, uh, without the NOC from the husband. So then they may want a proof uh, in the immigration that uh, she's a single mother and she has custody of the children. Or if she wants to move on with having another civil marriage here, then she needs to do all those attestations. How and who would you go go through the process of having divorce papers notarized? Is it a case of going to a family lawyer? Is it court? What's that? No, it is just the formal attestations uh, in, the, in the foreign ministry and in the ministry, um, in the UAE embassy in their own country. Okay. Once you get it attested, it's the same thing like you do a degree certificate attestation. Yeah. Okay. We've got a lot of divorce questions today. <laughs> No problem. Is that a reflection of a lot of divorce cases in Dubai? I think so. I think so. <laughs> Speaking to a few marriage councils I've had in that very yeah. seat in the last couple of weeks. Um, Daria saying, kindly please advise where I should go and what I should do to get support for my children from my ex. She says, we got divorced in 2018. We had a court verd verdict that he needs to support his children. But then... He left the country. A few days ago, I found out he's actually back in Dubai, has got a good job, but hasn't contacted us. I'm still hoping the law will be on my side, but I've got no idea where to go and what I should do about it. It's pretty straightforward. Um, she has to go to one of those court processing centers, Aladid, and file for execution of that judgment, that divorce judgment where she has been given maintenance to be paid by the husband for the children, I mean, ex-husband by the children. So she has to, the father has to pay for the children. So uh, once she can get the execution order uh, from the court, 
she can implement it and he can get an exit ban as well. He can get an exit ban. Okay. So that's interesting um, in terms of, well, it's been five years. Is that that still valid? Not an issue. She can claim for all the five years if he has not paid. Daria, there you go. If Devna Mahadeva is with us today, director and lawyer at Baker Tilly JFC Law Group, you can message us or you can do as Majesty's done and get in touch on the phone line. Hello, how are you? Hi, good afternoon. How can I help you? And, and definitely not me. How can Devon help you this afternoon? <laughs> thank you so much. Um, thank you for this great show. We learned a lot from the show. So thank you oh, so much. Thank you. I, yes, I appreciate that. My question is regarding well, and I would like to know if it's possible, what are the legislation to register well in Abu Dhabi or Dubai for Muslim people? Great question, Devon. And what do we need to know? Yeah, uh, ADJD, that is Abu Dhabi Judicial Department, which is uh, based out of the Abu Dhabi court, uh, they have a wills and probate registry, and a Muslim can register a will. As far as you're not a UAE national, you can register a will. And is it quite quite straightforward in terms of costs and you know lead-in times and all of that process? Yeah, see, it's, it's ideally, it's better to get a law firm to do it for you or a, or a specialist in this area. Uh, to do it for you because they will know what to write, what not to write, and what is your requirement because it gets custom-made. Otherwise, you can do it directly ready-made, but then it will not have that customization per se. Do you need to be a resident or be on an Abu Dhabi visa in order to have it registered in Abu Dhabi? You don't need a residentship. You can be in any part of the world and you can do this because it's all online. Ah, okay. Uh, And... uh, uh, you, because there are a lot of investors in this country who don't even have a visa. They don't have a residentship and nothing. But they do have assets in the UAE. They, ha- they, they do have assets, yeah. Majdi, anything else we can help you with? Is it any, um, any follow-up questions that Devon can assist? Thank you so much. This is fantastic. Thank you. You are so welcome, Anytime. sir. Take Stay care. well. Um, Devon Mahadeva with us this afternoon. Um, staying with Abu Dhabi, a message here saying, can a Muslim woman get married to a Christian man in the Abu Dhabi civil court? Uh, a Muslim to Muslim marriage, you can do it in the court, regular court, uh, the Sharia court. And uh, uh, non-Muslims can get married in the civil court. But uh, a marriage between a Muslim and a non-Muslim is not registered in the UAE. So that it cannot be registered in the civil court, nor in any of the uh, embassies or consulates. Because there are a lot of country embassies which do embassies or consulates. They do uh, solemnize marriages, but they will not solemnize marriages between a Muslim and a non-Muslim. Thank you, Devonand. Um, Annalisa says, hello both. Now, I'm not going to lie here. I don't really understand the question. Okay, <laughs> okay. go ahead. <laughs> I'm going to say it slowly yeah. and hopefully you can hold a hand in it. Yeah. Saying, I'd like to ask about power of attorney, please. I have no clue. From what I understand from Dubai court, I should get power of attorney paper from my ex-husband in order to get child custody. My ex-husband does not have any objection. He's in the UK. Does it mean that he'd have to make the paper in the UK with an attorney there or should he appoint someone in Dubai to make the paper here? Any explanation would be welcome. Uh, interesting question. See, uh, it, it, I wouldn't call it exactly as a power of attorney. It's a no objection or, or you can call it a power of attorney. Um, to, for you to sponsor, for a lady to sponsor the child. The ideal thing which you have to do is if you have already got legal custody of the child and if you have already got your divorce papers, 
uh, as she says, ex-husband in this case. Uh, she can always show those documents. She can attest those documents and submit in the immigration and sponsor the children. There is no need of anything else. But if she has not got any custody papers, not the divorce finalized, then she may have to get a NOC uh, from the husband. Uh, signed, documented in, uh, in the UK, it has to be notarized and mm. then it has to be attested by the uh, UAE embassy in, in the UK, attested by the foreign ministry in uh, UAE and then it can be submitted. Wow. Sounds like a lot of paperwork. Yeah, it's quite a bit of paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> um, staying with paperwork, Dee says, Hi, I've got a court document from my home country, the Philippines, showing sole custody in my favour, which I've had translated and attested by the UAE embassy in my home country. Does that mean that the sole custody is now enforced here in the UAE? Thank definitely. you. Definitely. That was a short answer. Yes, definitely. She can have sole custody of the child. She just has to, I mean, further attested in the foreign ministry and it can be submitted to the immigration and she can have um, the visa sponsored for the child. Thank you, Devon. And coming back to Will's message, he's saying, how much does it cost to make the Muslim will? We're talking about Nabi Dhabi there. And which is the address to get it done? Do we have any set costs? Uh, generally, if you're using a law firm, it's, it's going to cost you somewhere around, uh, say, about for a, for a couple. Uh, for a couple, it's going to cost you somewhere around seven to 8,000 dirhams. This is what you would call a mirror well. Mirror wells, yeah. And this would be, let's pretend we're married, yeah. um, that you know, if I pass, then everything would go to you and vice versa. Vice versa. And then to have it registered in Abu Dhabi, yeah. um, is there's an additional cost? No, all inclusive. All inclusive. It will come to about seven to 8,000 dirhams with the legal fees, the lawyer's fees, the... Uh, the um, the Abu Dhabi Judicial Department fees, and there is a fee for the translators. Altogether, it'll come to that. Um, a question for you, sir. We've been talking about wills in Abu Dhabi, so I've had a couple of follow-up messages. One saying, what is the address or who to contact for the will in Abu Dhabi? This is for Muslims in particular we were talking about earlier. How can people take that forward? Yeah, so I, I, as I told earlier, there are two ways to do it. One is you can go to the ADJD website and you can do it by yourself or you can get to a law firm which specializes or who does this uh, inheritance work because all law firms don't do inheritance work. So law firms which specialize in inheritance work, you get to them and they will sort it out for you Okay, because uh, it, it involves quite a bit of process. Hmm. So they take care of the whole process. Perfect. And a message here saying, does Dubai have the same will procedures, Abu Dhabi? And if not, what is the will registration process in Dubai for Muslims? See, uh, Abu Dhabi has the system for Muslims as of date. And you can register. I mean, if you register in Abu Dhabi, it's valid anywhere in the UAE, whether it is uh, Dubai or Ras al-Khaimah or Sharjah. So um, it doesn't matter where you are registering. So if it is available in ADJD, might as well do it. Go for it. Um, no name on this one. Devon is saying, as an Emirati national, can I be written out of a will, if a will exists? Let's say my father passes, am I entitled to his assets? Yes. As per the Sharia table, uh, any, any offspring, legal offspring, is uh, entitled for their share of the assets of the parent. And Adrian is saying, um, is an Irish-made will recognised here if I own a business? Uh, not exactly. The Irish-made will cannot be accepted here, but you may be able to probate once the person passes away, you may be able to probate that will in Ireland and then bring it as an order here and try to implement it through the courts here. Uh, Irish will directly may not work, but ideally for you, to handle the business here, it's better to register a local will and keep it. It's ideal. 
HUNC, that's, that's exactly it, making sure those assets are protected properly. Yes, properly. Um, you can get in touch with us on 4001. You've got the ARN Play app and you've got the WhatsApp too, 04871 This is Akeem who has a question about sponsoring family members of different nationalities. I am the sponsor of two different nationalities. As a Nigerian, I sponsor an American and I sponsor a Moroccan. Nigerians have issues right now to be able to get approvals for for changes of in visa um, status. So can I legally disconnect myself from the sponsorship of the two different nationalities so that they can I can sponsor them under different jurisdiction? I don't know. We don't we don't actually understand the question because. Uh so um, Akeem's Nigerian and he's saying he's got some problems um, with that nationality in terms of sponsoring Getting visas. sponsoring them, yeah. Yeah. So it, can he separate and I guess presumably have these people being sponsored by other people? Yeah, he can get uh, people sponsored by other people, but they may not be able to work for you. Mm. Uh, you you have to get a uh, NOC from the sponsor and take a um, uh, work permit on them. But you're going to face the same issue. Akeem, I, um, if you would like, please message me. I can I can send you details with Devon so you can have a little bit more clarity kind of off yeah. air and answer any questions. I think we need more, more information. Of this. Um, been in touch here saying, do we need um, paperwork from our country that we are single there before we get married here in civil court? This is from a woman who's from the Philippines. Yeah, uh, it, it depends on your nationality as well. Um, uh, certain nationalities, they request for singleness certificates. Um, certain nationalities, just a declaration would be enough. Um, and it depends on whether you are in, into a civil court or whether you are into your individual consulate of your country where you are uh, solemnizing your marriage. Uh, but they can demand a, a certificate or a, or a declaration or what we call in legal terms, we call it affidavit, saying that you are single. Hope that helps. All the very best if you are going to be taking that next step. Um, no name on this message, 4001, saying, My husband and I are planning to travel abroad for five days, leave our two kids here in Dubai. My cousin will be coming to take care of them while we're away together with our nanny. According to the child protection laws, is this okay? Or are parents not allowed to leave their children in the care of anyone and have to travel with them? Great question. Good question. Excellent. See, um, nobody's going to come and check in your house, whether it's um, the parent, they're living with the parent or the aunt or uncle or whoever it is. Uh, but the problem comes when there is an emergency. Mm-hmm. So when there is an emergency and the child has to be taken to a hospital or uh, some sort of eventuality happens, then when the parents are not there, it becomes a very sticky issue. So it's better if you're traveling abroad, yes, you can leave it with somebody else who is a a distant or immediate family member, but provided you keep enough papers in place so that uh, they are sort of authorized if there is an emergency to be taken to a hospital or things like that. And especially with children, because they always are highly prone to damages. They are. A clumsy little blighters. Um, so, you know, let's just be super clear. Um, and I'm certainly not saying this is this is what your intentions are, but it is illegal to leave children unattended at home. Um, it is, I believe, illegal to leave them with a nanny overnight. Overnight, yes. So the fact that your cousin is going to be there just to cover yourself, maybe good to have a, a letter to say, this is who yep. we are, this is who this person is. We give them permission to make any decisions on our behalf in our absence. That's very important. Okay. Hope that helps. I think we can squeeze in one last question. We've got Kamala on the phone now who's got a question about um, a marriage certificate. Kamala, how can we help you? Hi, good afternoon. Um, 
So we have a need to, we were told that we needed to get our marriage certificate. I think it was attested. Uh, we were married 35 years ago in the UK. And um, now they want proof of that because I have a um, an Indian OCI card and my husband wants to get one. So they're not accepting the, the certificate as it is. So what I wanted to know is, do I get that done here or do I get it done in the UK? What is the process? So your your requirement is to get an OCI card, isn't it? That's correct. Okay. For, for my husband, I have one. And you got married in the UK? That's right. Yeah. So uh, you, are, you are an Indian origin, of course, if you have an OCI yes. card. Okay. But we both have uh, British passports. Oh, that's British fine. Passport. But we does both, your husband yeah. is an Indian origin or he's from? No, no, he's not. Okay, fine. No issues. What you have to do is you have to get your marriage certificate attested to prove it in the Indian uh, consulate that you're, mm-hmm. you're legally married. So what you right. have to do is get your um, uh, uh, the certificate which is issued in the UK 35 years back, attested mm-hmm. by the uh, UAE High Com- uh, Indian High Commission or any of the Deputy High Commission in the UK, uh, get that attested. Okay, I'm going to ask... Oh, in about, the um, Indian, Indian High Commission in the UK? Yes. How okay. do you even find... Is this a simple Google? Will this address come up and come there just calls and goes, yeah. hi, I need... Is, is it quite straightforward? Cause it sounds it's very like, straightforward, yeah. It is. Yeah. Cost involved? Any clues? But what would I have to do? Would I have to send them my certificate? Would I have to... Yeah, you have to I send mean, them how? the certificate and they have to stamp and, you know, you pay a charge and they will stamp and give you. I'm and they'll have... send it back to me. If you've still got it after 35 years, Kamala, you're a better woman than me. I've got no idea where our marriage certificate is. It's only been 10 for me. So, oh, God, in this country, you need all your papers. I know, and I'm always missing one piece of paper. Just say it again one more time, who Kamala needs to be contacting, Devonland. She has to get to any of the high commissions or deputy high commissions in the UK and get it uh, attested. They may require a foreign foreign ministry attestation in the UK, but ideally what you can do is you can uh, get hold of one of the agents who do attestations for degree certificates uh, okay. in, in the, in the, uh, for the UK. They do attestation. Right. They, know, they know the process and if you can use one of them, you can do it. Or if you have any a place back in UK. Them? Pardon? Any, mm-hmm. any recommendations? Do you have any idea how to find them? Uh, just Google it. I'm going okay. to Google. Yeah. <laughs> so you find you find somebody right. to attest it for you, and then then you are up there. Okay, Kamla, okay. all the Thank very best. So Good luck Thank with you. the paperwork. Deep breaths. Bye bye. Keep it. Keep us posted. Oh my goodness, it's been an absolute whirlwind of uh, of chat this afternoon, Devon. Thank you so so much. There's been Thank a number you. we haven't been able to get to this afternoon. I will absolutely put them aside for next time. Yes. Um, in the meantime, though, where can people contact you, sir? They can always get me on the uh, office phone line. There you go. You can find him at Baker Tilly, JFC yeah. Law Group, Devon yeah. Mahadeva. Are you going to go back down towards Jitex Way? Or are you going to hang out in Media City for a bit longer? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. I have to get for my next uh, meeting, which is a rotary meeting in Boulevard. Okay. Almost there. You can have a cup of tea while, you, while you're waiting yeah. for that traffic to settle down. <laughs> Devon Mahadeva, thank you so, so much. our attention now to physical fitness and joining us live in the studio, Yasmin Karachiwala, renowned Pilates instructor, a woman behind PAD here in Dubai, Pilates and Dance Studio, but her 
talents don't stop there. She has transformed the bodies of some of the biggest stars in Bollywood and is known for pioneering and even revolutionising Pilates in India. You're here for just a couple of days before flying back to India. How are you, Yasmin? I'm great, Helen. How are you? Thanks for having me on your show. My pleasure. My pleasure. Now, I first started doing Pilates, oh my goodness, let me try and work it out. 20-something years ago. Oh, wow. I was living in Toronto, and my cousin, who's a Pilates instructor now, dragged me along to a studio, and I'd never heard of it before. I couldn't walk for days. Are you kidding me? Really? I couldn't step off a curb. I (laughs) I was in bits, but completely got the bug. And it's it's been really incredible to see how strong you can get through it. But I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you first started doing Pilates because it's um it's been an amazing journey. Right. So I have been an instructor for over 30 years, three decades. And uh, I started with group fitness instruction and then I moved on to become a personal trainer. And I had kids, two kids by then. And I had this belly fat that just wouldn't go. And I would do a thousand crunches trying to get rid of my belly fat. All that I managed to do was strengthen the muscles. So the fat uh, pushed out even more. (laughs) And I was like so frustrated. I went online to research what can I do and up pops this thing called Pilates, which I'd never heard before. And I got fascinated, looked into it. It said, you work your core, your core gets stronger. For me at that time, core meant abdominals and, you know, the stomach muscles. And I was like, okay, this is what I want to learn. So I called up the studio in um, in California, which was a very renowned studio. And I said, hey, I want to come and do your teacher's training. And I wanted to do the mat teacher's training because I didn't know about equipment at that point. And they were like, great, what's your experience in Pilates? And I said, zero. And they said, no, to be a Pilates instructor, you need to have at least one year of, uh, you know, uh, being a student of Pilates to be able to even understand what it is. And I said, well, I don't have anybody who teaches Pilates in India. So how am I going to do that? And they said, California is a long way away from India. You cannot come here without the prerequisition. You might waste your money. You might not be able to go through it. To cut a long story short, I was I hopped onto the next flight. I went there and I said, I'm going to do this. I spent like 12 hours in the studio, went in for the, for the mat training, saw the equipment, fell in love and never looked back. So you've now taken that expertise back to India and, as I said, kind of really pioneered it as a discipline. Um, tell us about what it does for the body. Oh, my God. So, so many things. Uh, But the most important thing is it makes you stronger from within. Mm -hmm. It makes you move better. It makes you it makes your life better. It it de-stresses you because every movement goes with breath. And we uh, we uh, specify a lot on breath and Pilates. So. The breath is what de-stresses you, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're breathing constantly. You're feeling strong from inside out. Uh, I tell people, whatever else you're doing in life, do Pilates and you can do that better. So whether you're an athlete, you'll perform better. If you're a businessman, you'll sit up straighter. You'll look more regal in your meetings. If you're a housewife, you'll do your chores better. If you're a mother, you'll be able to lift your children without back pain. Mm-hmm. I think that... Uh, man um, 
aspect is something that's really come to the fore recently. And a big part of that is exactly what you just mentioned, athletes who are rehabbing, who are using Pilates. And we've seen it, you know, with ice hockey stars, with big NFL players who are perhaps not your typical Pilates, um, you know, studio visitor, but really, really seeing those results. Do you wish more men were getting in the studio? 100% because Pilates is not just for women. It was invented by a man, Joseph Pilates, for men during the First World War. So it is basically designed for men. It's just that when Joseph Pilates moved to New York City, he was above a dance studio and all the dancers went to him who saw amazing results and then Hollywood stars went to him and that's why it became like a chick thing but it's actually really good and for athletes I've seen some amazing work because I work with a lot of cricketers in Pilates and their their injuries are less they're playing better their rotation and flexion is better so yes lots of benefits it's funny because I was just saying to you my, my cousin who's now a, a Pilates instructor trainer she's working in the south of France and she has her normal practice you know reformer but she also works at a golf club and she's right. you know doing a lot with golf pros about exactly that stopping not getting injured in the first place right and that so technique my brother plays golf and just yesterday i was at at the pad training a golfer and thought came to me that i'm going to go with my brother to the golf course one of these mornings and just do like a 10 15 minute session with his friends instead of trying to get them into the studio go to them <laughs> give them a taste of it about what it does to the body and then get them hooked Yasmin, we are going to be talking about breast cancer awareness in uh, about 20 minutes. We've got Dr. Rita joining us to be talking about mammograms, ultrasound, self-checking at home. And I know that you've used Pilates to help those who have been through breast cancer. Can you tell me how it does help with recovery, whether that is you know, physical and mental? Uh, you know, Pilates is the most gentlest form of exercise and the most intense form of exercise depends on where you want to take it. And I just feel like what it does for breast cancer survivors or any cancer survivors or any injury, any person who's had an injury and is in recovery, is it gently gets you to feel uh, and be aware of your body and then to rehab it to good health. And it gives you that confidence that you can move. And that's what we do in Pilates is we like to empower our clients with confidence. And, you know, when you have confidence, because you just feel like a part of your body is not with you anymore. And I think for women, the breasts are such an important part of our body mm-hmm. that not to have it is just psychologically, um, you know, uh, hard. And just to know that you can still move through things that you used to do without feeling conscious, I think mm-hmm. that's what Pilates does. It gives you a lot of confidence with your own body. It gives you a lot of awareness about your body. And uh, that's what we like to do with people who come through the doors. You've written a book called Perfect 10. This is 10 minutes workout you can do anywhere. Um it kind of dispels a lot of myths about fitness. So what are some of the big ones that you're addressing in the book and that perhaps people might be the most surprised by? People who don't have time to work out. People who say, I have absolutely no time and they think that they need to remove an hour to go work out. I wanted to target those people. I wanted you're to looking target- at one. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to target people 
who travel and you know so the book has 25 stacks of 10 minute workouts and the reason i say stacks is because in the book i tell you stack it up so if you have 20 minutes then you do t- two 10 minute stacks and you make it 20 if you have an hour great do you know six stacks so but if you don't have time then you can do one stack in the morning for sure one in the evening if you can remove another 10 minutes and think about it if i tell you okay all you need to do is work out for 10 minutes to be fit you're not your mind's not even going to think about it so, it's so going to say yay so my thing is when once you start moving even for 10 minutes you start feeling good you're releasing endorphins your body's feeling good you are going to want to do more mm. but when you think of one hour and you've already knocked it that you don't have time you're not even going to try So this is and the the book has a QR code that you scan and then I've recorded all my 25 stacks on video so on my website where it takes you and then you work out along with me so all you need is a mat and a bottle of water and you're good to go. Well, I tell you what, you I can do 10 minutes. <laughs> so no excuses in this corner of the studio. Um yes, and what's the best way of getting in touch with you finding the book? I know you're only here for one more day, um but maybe coming along and training with the guys at Pad, what would you suggest? I think get in touch with the Pad, they know exactly how to reach me. Okay. The Pad is actually very close to here. You're yeah, in the it's Greens. It's in the Greens, right? If you want details of that, you can just send me the word Pad or Pilates. I'd be very happy to connect you. Great to have you in Dubai. You're not too far. You're just a few few hours away. So right. we'll see you back in town soon. We will. Thank you so much, Helen. Thank It was you. a complete pleasure. And to meet you, Yasmin Karachiwala speaking to us. Addressing anxiety this hour and delighted to welcome to the studio and to the UAE clinical psychologist Dr. Amina Toki speaking to us from Sage Clinics. Um thank you so much for being with us. Um even you've been here Six weeks, yeah. Now We're you, very new. It, welcome. You arrived <laughs> just you. just at the right time, weather-wise. Um, can I ask? And I know it's a bit soon to say, but you specialize in working with children and teens. Mm-hmm. When we're thinking about anxiety in general, have you noticed any differences between the UK and here? Um, are there differences? I, I think you know, anxiety is universal, and research has demonstrated that for years. Anxiety exists globally, all over the world. Um has there been a rise um is there a difference between the UAE and uh London it is still a bit early for me to mm. tell but i think some of what we are witnessing is the after effects of covid right yeah. Yeah. so a lot more of anxiety in children social anxiety separation anxiety generalized worry so it's really hard to kind of separate from so many factors i mean mm. we're lucky here and i think in terms of medical insurance and being able to access great help so you might see more people coming into clinic than maybe in other parts of the world is dubai a more pressurized city than any other city mm. i don't know i'm not I, it's really really hard to exactly. say um what i'm kind of curious is exactly that you know is it on the rise because when i think back to when i was at school there were definitely mm. kids that were what kind of teachers and parents would deem a real worrier yeah um and now yeah. i worry that we kind of overpathologize and sure. put a label of you know he has anxiety or she's an anxious child mm. how do you feel about the conversation and how that's developed so in terms of if we look at research um it's saying that anxiety is more than doubled post covid in children mm. and adolescents um and 20% are now reporting that they are you know it's distressing levels of anxiety So on one hand we might say that actually you know we are we are using the language to express what is happening for us emotionally 
Um, but on the other hand, you know, it, it could be that, you know, we're in society now where there is so much pressure to produce, produce, produce. Mm -hmm. These kids are stimulated nonstop from every angle. There is no break. Yeah, do you know what? My kids are on half-term break right now, as I'm sure many people listening today. And I'm like, guys, just chill out because... I'm really guilty of perhaps overpacking their schedules a little mm. bit with that. And there's stuff they want to do. You yeah. know, I'm not like forcing them to be yeah. <laughs> like coding every day or anything. <laughs> um, but they, um, you know, they, mm. they're busy. You know, schools start here at seven, you know, seven, seven thirty in the morning. And then there's after school activities and then there's homework. And it's, it's a different environment, I think, when you're paying for education as well um, yeah. in terms of the pressures there. Um, so to any of the parents who have got zero plan for their kids this week, <laughs> you're in good company mm. and don't worry about it. I got my knickers in a bit of a knot at the weekend because the kids had been on their iPad for, I would, to my mind, too long. My husband was like, just honestly, this is about you, not them. Like, let them mm. just relax. Yeah. However, well, can you maybe perhaps explain some of the signs? And you're talking there about kind of distressing levels of anxiety. Mm. When these worries about homework or when these very normal things come up about friendship groups or, mm. you know, just the day-to-day -day stuff about being a kid, a tween, a teen. But what are some of the signs that things, mm. you know, perhaps do need to be taken a bit more seriously? That's a really good question. So if we were to define anxiety, it's fears, worries and it's a very normal experience. Like we should be having fears and we should be worried because that's how you get things done. Mm -hmm. That's how you stay away from things that are risky. You keep yourself safe. So I think, you know, anxiety should exist. And I think as soon as parents see them, our natural tendency might be to panic and be like, oh, it shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be worried. Yeah, we I need to do something. You. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, you know, anxiety is a healthy emotional experience. We need to have that. But what I would be aware of is, um, does it fit with their developmental age? Mm. So, for example, toddlers, they are going to be a little bit more anxious in terms of when you're separated from them. But does that exist into their, you know, well into them being at school or, or, or as teenagers? And, and how does that distress present? Mm. So some of the ways that it might present in children is that, you know, we might say that, you know, they get a little bit aggressive maybe before wanting to go into an activity that is causing them some worries. Um, you know, crying a lot before bedtime because they're worried about that cycle happening again in the morning. Um, you know, struggle, you know, struggling communicating. But of course, we'd expect that from any children who knows how to use emotional language somatic children usually feel it a lot more because they don't have the words to say it so to the tummy aches exactly so exactly. it's it sounds to me a, a bit like when we're talking about you know diagnosing depression anxiety in adults it's like when it's stopping you from leading exactly. a healthy happy normal life exactly okay can i ask you perhaps a bit mm -hmm. of a controversial question mm -hmm. do you think anxious parents have anxious kids mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i think you know, children are very, very, um, in, you know, attuned to what's happening around them. And, you know, parents are their models, aren't they? Your caregivers are your models for how you relate to the outside world. Mm -hmm. You learn it from them. So absolutely, if a parent, you know, has a difficult relationship with anxiety, so everybody's anxious, but if they have a difficult relationship with anxiety and how that comes across, you know, is impacting their lives, it's only natural that their child's going to pick that up, right? Yeah. I saw it a lot during the pandemic. Mm. And I was like, oof, this is... 
Mm. This is this is hard. It's hard to you know recognize it in yourself yeah. if that makes sense. And I wanted to talk about some of the common triggers, and maybe it's a way of normalizing to people listening today that what their kids might be going through is actually very part and parcel. So with with kids coming into clinic, obviously in particular, and they have taken that step to to reach out to a clinical psychologist such as yourself, what are some of the common things that you're hearing? Mm. So the common anxiety that we're seeing now is a lot of social anxiety. I think the rise of the internet, social media, you know, it's having a huge impact on these children. Like, you know, when we were younger, I don't know, I don't know what you think, Helen, but, you know, we could take risks and know that it will be old news. Mm-hmm. But now it's not old news. It's now it could forever. be permanent mm-hmm. and could be there forever. And there's this cancel culture. It's unforgiving. You know, there's these exposing, like something could have happened ages ago. And then you're living in fear that somebody might post it again or say something again, right? Mm. So I think these are nuanced new things that that we need to be aware of that children are going through. Can I ask you then, um, you know, anxiety can really significantly impact a child's development. And you mentioned social anxiety, overall well-being. What about untreated anxiety? Mm. You know, what, what impact can that have on those social, the academic, the relationships? So... One of the things that we we start off by doing with when working with anxiety is we do psychoeducation. It's teaching them why are you anxious? Um, where is this anxiety manifesting in your body, in your mind? What are your thoughts like? What do you do when you're anxious? You're raising somebody's psychological awareness to how anxiety operates in their life. So that's step one. If that isn't happening, anxiety is always going to alarm you, right? Step two, you're teaching them to regulate the anxiety themselves. So not always looking outside in the world to soothe the anxiety, but it's building up your own tolerance to distress. These are the things I can do when I'm feeling like this. Early intervention. So then when they notice it, it's not waiting for anxiety to be at 100. I can address it when it's at two or three now. This sounds like something that everybody could benefit from. Absolutely. I mean, the amount of adults we meet who just have never had the opportunity or the resources to learn to self-soothe early on in life Mm -hmm. that then live with, you know, the distress for years and years and years. And it ripples into their academic life, their life at work, relationships, parenting. Now, obviously what you do in clinic needs to be continued out of clinic. And I'm sure that must be very challenging for a lot of parents. Um, You know, my husband and I have talked a lot about having very different parenting styles and that I am definitely more permissive, you know, having spoken to amazing experts such as you. I I, I have access to great people who I, I guess I'm just feeling a bit more emotionally, I don't say evolved, but you know, I, I'm very mm. quick to validate the kids' feelings. But I think an awful lot of parents can be like, well, why are you worried about going to school? Mm. You know, if you're being bullied, you say this to them. And I think there's a big danger of kind of invalidating some absolutely. kids' anxieties. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. And validation is another technique we give to parents almost immediately. Mm-hmm. You know, this anxiety is valid. Let's treat it with compassion and not blame the children for having an experience that makes absolute sense. Doctor, we're going to go to the text line, if you don't mind. Um, you're going to have to be quick if you've got a question, uh, 4001. Anonymous Master saying, how can I help my eight-year-old daughter with what might be separation anxiety? Mm-hmm. She's got a residential school trip coming up in January and she's already worried about it, saying she doesn't want to go. That's a really, really good question and very common. A lot of young people are experiencing this. Um, so one of the things that I really like to draw on is be creative and playful with your kids. You know, the kids are so creative and they come up with beautiful images and ideas. So one piece of advice I'll give is, of course, validate. Um, It is scary to go to places we don't know. But if you want to try something, I would say try exposure, 
So visit the site beforehand with your child, get her familiar with it, look it up online. What does it look like? And then imagine, like, you know, work with the child to imagine themselves in that space. Mm -hmm. You know, imagine getting up in that morning, getting ready, going over there, having a great day there, coming back. If they're afraid of something, imagine what, what's the worst that's going to happen and how they're going to overcome that. <laughs> that's what I find. I'm, I'm a real <laughs> catastrophizer. I'm like, Helen, what is the worst that can happen? And that can dial things down pretty quickly yeah. that's really lovely advice though in terms and we've had this quite a lot you know ahead of school starting as well you know going to a school and again similar advice you know look online at the website go to the, drive past the school look at the mm. uniform try it on you know mm. these little things that add up to boosting the confidence of a child to put themselves Absolutely. in that situation um no name on this one saying your, your your point about anxious parents really hit a nerve we moved here in the summer the kids have started school and while nothing's been said from the teachers i have asked i worry about my kids socially fitting in having friends being happy mm -hmm. I know it stems from my own experience I felt like an outsider and very anxious as a child how do I kick my anxiety into control <laughs> before it affects them yeah and I think awareness is such a key part of this you know being like catching yourself mm -hmm. so being aware of when you notice your anxiety bubbling up what are you doing to manage that because sometimes what we do is we'll wait to see anxiety at 10 like as I was saying earlier notice when it's coming up notice what's yours and what's theirs and talking about it, like, don't be afraid to mention things like kids are very good at talking through things as well. So create that language for it, create the space for it with your kids, you know, and, and say, you know, I was feeling a bit anxious and this is what I did that made me feel better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like modeling that and, and creating this language and a safe space to talk about emotions, like always easier said than done, though. <laughs> it, it is. But there's some great books as well that can be mm -hmm. really useful tools if we feel uncomfortable that we haven't got the, mm -hmm. you know, the so-called right language to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, a message here saying, good afternoon. My daughter um, is on the dyslexic spectrum. Her mum mm -hmm. and I both run our, um, our own business. Um, we're most spend most of our time stressed due to the nature of the business. We're engaged in employment service. Although we try our level best to meet our daughter's needs, she isn't very happy. She's still sucking her fingers for the last 11 years. and She's going to tw turn 12 in December. Please advise us what to do. She gets very, very close to anger. Oh, sounds really, really difficult, you know. And hmm, so, so she's obviously trying to engage in some kind of soothing behavior, mm. right? So she's trying to look at soothing techniques, like she's trying something. The, the sucking thumb is a classic soothing technique. Uh, full disclosure, I sucked my thumb until I was like nine years old, by I the way. I sucked my thumb until I was in my 30s. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I... I Absolutely. I still sometimes do. But, yeah. but I recently, this is sorry, this is, this, is, this is a topic from the day, but I recently found out that I've got a severe tongue tie and that's why I was doing ah. it. And it was only when I got braces. But it's really interesting because my mm. daughter sucks her thumb as well. Yeah. And she also has a tongue tie. Yeah. So for, for, for those sensory, kind of... Sensory, yeah. It is. It's exactly. It's a sensory stimulation. Yeah, so absolutely. maybe get that investigated. Yeah. But, but she's obviously... Yeah, using these coping Absolutely. strategies. So one thing I could, that she might want to try for herself, like you might want to work with her on, is getting her other soothing items or getting her to engage with her senses. So um, a very simple technique is the five, four, three, two, one. Five things I can see, four things I can touch, three things I can smell, two things I can taste. One thing that, what's the other sense? The other sense. Smell. Smell, eyes, listen, <laughs> etc. Yes. right? So using your senses to ground yourself and you can help her do that. But the other thing is, is I can hear you guys are really busy. And, you know, something that really surprised me is when parents are like, you know, how do I connect? Because parents are struggling to connect. They're under so much pressure at work, you know, um, you know, both parents having to work when typically in the past, you know, we always had someone at home, mm -hmm. right? So connection doesn't have to be hours and hours carved out in your day. To co connection can be when you're walking to the car 
I connection can be agree. a conversation. But what's really, really important to us, because I have a huge amount of working mum guilt and my kids are, are mm. very good at leveraging that, um, <laughs> is, is something that actually a, a guest we have on quite a lot, Principal Lisa, on, um, she's recommended something called the Magic 20. So 20 minutes every day where you say to your child one-on-one, what would you like to do and name it and frame mm. it and say, this is our time. My phone's going in my handbag. I'm leaving my phone in the kitchen, whatever. What do you want to do? And sometimes my kids want to play Lego. Sometimes they want to watch TV with me. Sometimes they want me to read them a story, whatever it might be. It might be walking over the road to Spinney's, whatever. Mm. But for them to have it framed as this is our time seems yeah. to make a huge difference. Absolutely. And consistency. Yeah. And if you make a promise you're going to do that, keep that promise. Mm-hmm. And if it's not going to be a daily thing, it's going to be a weekly thing, carve it out and make sure you're committed to that. Mm. Because you showing up for them is a sign of building up their own safety, them knowing that they can rely on you. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really value it. As it's, you're a, an amazing addition to the city. We're thrilled to have you here. Um, would you, you mind just very quickly telling us a little bit about your areas of specialty at mm-hmm. Sage? Would that be okay? Thank you. So I work with children, adolescents and adults, particularly interested in working with girls and women who have been recently maybe diagnosed with, a uh, we call it neurodiversity, like autism, ADHD, uh, working a lot with trauma. As we know, trauma has a very huge impact on people's mental health, intergenerational trauma. So those are some of my areas of interest, but I also work with general mental health difficulties. People are struggling, you know? People are struggling. It's a, it's a really difficult time right now for so, mm. so many reasons. Um, and it's great to know that there are people out there on hand to help. Dr. Amina, thank you so, so thank much. You. Thank you for having Wishing me. Wishing you a wonderful afternoon ahead. According to a survey out just today of a thousand adults, most women don't know breast cancer symptoms apart from lumps. So what are some of the telltale warning signs? In that survey, it found that 93% of people knew to look out for lumps. But there are so many other symptoms that we need to be aware of. And that's what we're talking about this hour. Dr. Rita Saka, consultant breast cancer, oncoplastic surgeon and OBGYN at King's College Hospital. She was the doctor that held my hand through my consultation last week. How are you, Dr. Rita? Hi, Helen. How are you? I'm very well. In no small part, thanks to you. Um, we, we've been talking, of course, as we should, all the way through October about the importance of early detection. And uh, I absolutely walked the walk and didn't just talk the talk and brought myself into clinic last week for my, uh, my annual mammogram. So thank you for keeping me calm. I really did appreciate it. Yeah, no thanks. It should be like a, a, regular, a regular visit and a regular uh, screening test that we all need to remember once a year after 40. So definitely thank you for spreading the message. Thank you for spreading the awareness and reminding every woman about the checkup and about the uh, this time. Now, would you mind explaining a little bit about your background as a breast cancer specialist and, and why you became interested in this field, Dr. Rita? Oh, I wasn't expecting that question. So this is a very <laughs> but it's useful to know, I think. Yes, it's a very dear question. So um, I started in France as obigyne, and in France, usually the obigyne are also taking care of the breast because it's a woman health. Mm. So it is a woman health care from breast to gynecology part. And uh, the more I moved uh, further with my uh, specialization studies, I got more attached to breast cancer patients, breast cancer care, breast cancer follow-up. So this is why I decided to go further deeper in my uh, specialization and I got more training in the oncoplastic surgery of the breast, 
breast cancer care. I got my PhD in molecular biology of the breast so we can understand the breast cancer further and be able to help patients mm-hmm. further in treating and in follow-up after the treating. Well, thank you. I think I just think it's important to understand a bit of context and, I guess, passion in, in this area. Um, so what I'm inviting everyone to get in touch with today is, is exactly that. No such thing as a silly question. And it was really interesting when I posted the video last week of me coming into the hospital, some of the questions I had and, and ultimately kind of addressed with that. Um, and it was really interesting to think about a few different parts, self-examination, ultrasound and mammogram. So would you mind starting a little bit with self-examination? What role do those checks that we do ourselves play in early detection? And would you mind perhaps walking through the proper technique for a self-exam, Dr. Rita? Sure, sure. So self-examination is a very important part because we are not living with a doctor every day, but we can, by checking ourselves, be aware of any change. And again, as you mentioned, there is no silly question, there is no silly comment. It is better to check for any any kind of change we notice in our body so we can make sure we're not missing a sign. So self-examination has to be every month. As soon as we grow up every month after the period, we need to learn how to know our body. And how we know that is by checking ourselves on regular basics. So it should be every month after the period. We look at ourselves in the mirror and then we make sure there is no difference as compared to last month. And then we lift our arms and we check ourselves physically with our fingers to make sure again that there is no difference. Any slight difference has to be checked with the doctor. There is no, again, no silly question, no silly checkup. Some, most of the time it is nothing, but it is better to let the doctor tell us mm-hmm. it is nothing. It is nothing to worry about. So self-examination will help the brain to memorize if we do it every month. And the brain will tell us something different because we are doing it every month. So it has been has to be done every month after the period. It can be circular. It can be from up to down. Main message is to do it the same way Mm -hmm. because the way to memorize and then to notice if there is any difference is by doing it the same way. This is the best way to remember and this is the best way the brain can help us to say that there is something is, that is different. Dr. Rita, as I said, this survey just out today talking, you know, and I'm sure this would absolutely resonate with everyone listening today. We know that we should be looking for, for lumps. 93% of the respondents said that is, you know, a, a sign that we might need to get investigated. But there are other symptoms of breast cancer that we should be alerted to when we're self-examining. Would you mind explaining what else would be on your watch list? Definitely. So not only the lump that we look for when we are checking for any difference. There is a very nice um, nice uh, chart on Google. You can look at it like lemon, lemon breast cancer. And it shows what we need to look at when we're doing self-examination. It, it can be any change in the skin, any redness, any change in the veins, any lumpiness and any change like a bump or a lump in the nipple area, any discharge from the nipple. So any kind of change at all level of the breast and the axilla needs to be shared with the doctor. And this picture I recommend it because it's very helpful for us visually to recognize what are the changes and the difference we need to look at. And I wanted to ask you now, Dr. Rita, about the ultrasound mammogram. Can you please explain who should get a mammogram, who's eligible um, at, uh, in their life stage or indeed family history? 
Yes. So for the mammogram, usually every woman should be starting her mammogram at the age of 40, 40. So every woman should start the mammogram at the age of 40. Usually we associate the breast ultrasound to improve our level of screening and make sure we're not missing anything because each one of those tests can show a component of the breast. Mm -hmm. Now, considering the family history, this is a very interesting topic. We should always share with our doctor our family history of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, so on, any kind of cancer. Because there are guidelines and depending on the number of people with history, number of people in the family with breast cancer, ovarian cancer, their age, their category, degree of relativeness to the patient, then there is a different recommendation to start the mammogram and the ultrasound and maybe the MRI earlier mm -hmm. than the age of 40. So it really depends on the age of the patient. It depends on the age of the people who had breast cancer in her family and the number of person who had breast cancer in her family either mother's side or father's side. And then we will evaluate with the doctor in which category she falls and then what is the plan for her observation, imaging, mammogram, ultrasound, MRI, what is the plan for her? Okay. Well, maybe we can help out a couple of listeners that have been in touch now. Kamala says, I'm 25, but my mum's sister passed away from breast cancer. Does that mean I should get a mammogram? So 25 years old. And I know there's probably more questions you'd like to ask Kamala, but what advice would you give in terms of the most effective um, can check at this time? Yes, so she needs to check. She needs to come to the doctor so we can evaluate properly the biology, what her aunt had. So we need to go through details and we will start it with, usually with the clinical examination, evaluation properly of the history. We might discover more people having other type of cancer which can be related to the breast. Mm -hmm. And then depending on the clinical, we can start with ultrasound, but definitely I would advise her to counsel first so we can evaluate properly her history. And the same with this listener, and I'm sure you're going to say the same, but I think it's really valuable to hear it, saying on my mum's side, all her aunts as well as her mother had breast cancer, and my mum got it first when she was 36. I'm 36 now and scared. Mammogram last time was two years ago. They found nothing but said ultrasound was needed. What signs can I look out for? Do I need only mammograms or ultrasound as well? So 36 years old, and as we're hearing there, um, quite a family history when it comes to breast cancer, Dr. Rita. Yeah, so definitely she is at a strong, strong uh, family history of breast cancer. She will definitely need to be counseled for more than just mammogram ultrasound. We will do a proper genetic counseling, evaluating maybe the blood test, and then definitely the mammogram ultrasound alternating with the MRI. So she will really need the like, counseling to evaluate her genetic uh, situation. You mentioned earlier about some of the lesser-known symptoms that can can bring women into clinic wanting further investigation after a self-check at home and we we're talking about rash you know lumps into the armpits discharge and a message here saying um, I've had discharge from my breast but prolactin is normal last time I checked if I have PCOS am I more likely to be get breast cancer and what could that discharge mean I've been told by an OBGYN that a discharge is normal and it could be for multiple reasons not necessarily life-threatening. Yes, so it is very complicated like uh, situation to ask with a few sentences. Mm -hmm. So usually for discharge, we need to evaluate properly with ultrasound, make sure nothing is in the duct. And then prolactin by itself, we should, it's not like enough to give a uh, conclusion. The color of the discharge, the situation of the discharge, how frequent they are. So we will need to evaluate properly with the ultrasound as well.
To those people who've been in touch, and in fact, anyone who wants the details, both of Dr. Rita and indeed um, the offer that's on at King's College Hospital, which um, I can very happy to send you, um, just send me the word check and I'll send you the link for that. Um, Dr. Rita, one of the most common questions I got when I posted a video of me at uh, a clinic last week was, can you get a mammogram if you have breast implants? I had a couple of you going, I'm worried that they're going to burst. And, I, you know, I'm not saying anything uh, out of the ordinary here, but an awful lot of people in Dubai do have implants. So this is something that's very much normal when it comes to com- checking with mammograms. People don't need to be worried about that when they come in for their check, do they? Definitely, definitely. This is the the implants are not balloons. They will not burst if we do the the, the mammogram. It is completely safe. And we should come to do the mammogram even if we have implants. Now, if we are sensitive, we can always say, please, gently, let's do the mammogram gently. But this is not an excuse to avoid doing the mammogram. It is safe. We can do the mammogram even if we have implants. It's safe. Another question I had was about mammograms being painful. And, I mean, I can only Mm -hmm. speak to my experience. It wasn't painful at all. You know, the technician does this all day, every day. She was fantastic at, um, you know, angling and position. And yes, it's compression, but they need that to, de- to get an accurate picture. But there, there really wasn't any pain. And I think to your point there about communicating with a doctor and technician about, you know, I've got a low tolerance or I've got implants or just being open about your situation can, can make a big, big difference. Um, what else do you feel like we haven't talked about, Dr. Rita? Maybe some of the common misconceptions or myths that you've heard about checking or breast cancer that you think is really important to address with Dubai Eye listeners this afternoon? Definitely. It is safe. The mammogram is safe. The mammogram is not something that is uh, generating radiation. Those are one of the misconceptions that we have. So mammogram is safe. It can detect early things for which we can like have completely cure. So please do not forget your mammogram at the age of 40. Do not ignore self-examination. Sometimes you are busy. We don't give ourselves like this 10, 15 minutes. So it is important to remember to do our self-examination uh, on monthly basics. And do not hesitate to check any slight like uh, Uh, change, any slight questioning, any slight doubt, do not hesitate to check because Mm -hmm. we can clear it out very easily. And most of the time it's nothing, but it's better to clear it out. And and I guess I wanted to ask you, and this is something that came up last year for me, you know, I had a mammogram and we did an ultrasound just to check something that you'd found and I needed to go in for an MRI just to exactly that, get that peace of mind. Um, When it comes to finding something that might be deemed suspicious, um, what, what happens next? I guess, because I've had a couple of people message me going, I've been told I need to come in for a biopsy and I'm, I'm, I'm terrified. So would you mind just speaking to that what next piece? You know, let's say we come in yeah. for a mammogram with you, Dr. Rita. Something comes up that needs further investigation. Would you mind just putting some minds at ease there? Yes. So usually when we do an investigation, we have tools to investigate further the issue that is shown on the mammogram, for example. We have tools. We have breast ultrasound. We have a breast MRI, which is which give us more specific images, more clear images sometimes. Now, for there is a classification. We work with a very, very specialized high-level breast radiologist. They are very much experienced in the field. They will give us classification of the images. Now, sometimes the classification is completely normal. So we just ask the patient to come back for regular checkup later. Sometimes they find something for which we need further investigation. 
So it can be normal with further investigation required, and it can be highly suspicious of something, but without being sure what type of suspicion it is. This is where we recommend the biopsy. Mm-hmm. The biopsy is a tool, is a tool that will allow us to be sure 100% what is happening in this breast. So this is why we usually recommend it when there is a degree of suspicion for which the imaging is not enough to confirm. Um, Dr. Rita, you mentioned before about, you know, the, the best time to self-examine is just after your period. What about with the mammogram? We've had a message here saying how to prepare for a mammogram. Um, is there a, a best time in terms of the cycle that, you know, a mammogram can be the most accurate or what can women do to prepare for a mammogram, if anything? So ideally, ideally it would be for breast investigation to be done after the period because the hormonal levels are settled, there is the edema and all this in the breast are settled. So ideally, anything related to the breast is better to be done after the period. Now, for some reason, sometimes it is very urgent, a highly suspicious lesion, a highly suspicious self-finding. So we don't have the, the, the luxury to wait. We need to go ahead with the diagnosis and it is fine. Mm-hmm. But most of the time for screening, if we can do it after the period, would be better. Dr. Risa, thank you so much for your time. I think you've spoken so, so clearly um, about something that a lot of people still have some confusion and, and some embarrassment about. So I really can't thank you enough for, uh, for joining us this afternoon for this insightful session. Um, and of course, Dr. Rita, you can be found there at King's. It is Breast Cancer Awareness Month in October, but the deal at King's is running through until the end of November. This is the mammogram offer. Early detection saves lives, 350 dirhams. Um, it can detest a breast lump before you feel or see it. Um, and it is, it's about, it's about taking action. It's not just about talking or buying the pink cupcake. It is about getting checked, putting your mind at ease and taking control. Dr. Rita Saka, thank you so much for your time and all the amazing work you do really really appreciate it And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.